the biggest thing that I learned about dentistry is slowing down, especially in the communication for patients. Welcome to the Dental Head Start podcast. I'm David Keir, and we've been thinking lately, we've been reflecting, and we've been doing this for over two years now. We've had over 115,000 listens, tons of great content from really amazing guests who have shared so much on the podcast. It's been an absolute privilege to be able to get that information and share that with you guys. But I realize that many of you have not been with Dental Head Start from the start. You might have been only just getting into dental school then or just never heard of it. And so you haven't been exposed to all of the guests that we've had on the show. So this month, I'm taking a little step back from recording and actually doing a couple of reruns. Um, These are the episodes that were the most popular and for good reason. There's so many that were amazing, but a couple were doing um, a guest that have shared a lot and people really resonate with and appreciate. So this episode is a replay of the interview with Dr. Andrew Thorpe. Dr. Thorpe is a really well-known person on the Facebook forum, DPR. He gives back so much. He really helps people and supports people. He's done a lot of teaching in the oral surgery, um, anesthetics in that region. He's done postgraduate study in that space as well, especially around implants. And that's what we talk a lot about, his path to getting there, path to learning more complex procedures, his path into some postgraduate studies, um, doing the primaries and all those different things that a lot of you are thinking about. I'm sure this episode will give just as much value as it did the first time it was run. If you've been with us from the start, then you might have heard it. Don't forget to check out What I Wish I Knew. We've got Dr. Chidham Capel putting in great content as well. um, And we've got lots of awesome episodes coming up. And I'm going to take the chance to highlight that we're trying to do the the giving every month. Last month was for the flood victims of New South Wales. Um, We gave a couple of hundred dollars towards that. This month, we're going to be doing something for India and their struggles with COVID. Um, The point of this really, in my mind, is that I like the concept of giving at least a certain percent or something. And that's 1% in my personal life. It's a little bit more than that for Dental Head Start, obviously a very small business, but I really encourage you guys to consider that in your own way of doing things. If we all gave 1%, we'd really make a massive change. You can contribute to these projects via our page at dentalheadstart.com giving. 100% of anything donated goes straight to the cause because we already pay the admin fees. I hope you have the chance to take that up. For now, enjoy the episode with Dr. Andrew Thorpe. So Dr. Andrew Thorpe, welcome to the Dental Head Start podcast. Oh, pleasure to join you, Dave. So I've been um, I've been in the DPR Facebook forum for a, a few years. I graduated in 2016, and um, so four years before that. And I've been reading you, your posts, and your contribution to that for a long time. So I'm really excited to hear your story and to let the DPR community know a bit more about you and and what your journey's been like. So thanks thanks again for jo- joining us. That's my absolute pleasure to be on here. Like, uh, uh, hopefully, my persona doesn't disappoint. <laughs> I'm sure it won't. Speaking of your persona, I wanted to ask you straight off the bat. I found some old stuff, Dr. Andrew Thorpe TV. Can you tell us a bit about that? Oh, yeah. Now, Dr. Andrew Thorpe TV, well, it's my actual attempt to actually help educate my local community. So, back up in Mackay, so I was in Mackay for the last 10 years. And when I was up in there, um, I was uh, flirting with the idea of trying to be able to do some community education to in order to improve the healthcare of the local environment. So I started actually, I bought a green screen off of Amazon, yeah, uh, which yeah. took forever to come from the USA. And I got Camtasia and I got a little video camera and I just started filming myself and started editing a little bit. And um, 
as you probably found out, I didn't go very far. I didn't create too many things. I created some stuff about some toothpaste and some toothbrush. Uh, but that was essentially the idea of where that was meant to come from. So it was a little bit of a fun thing, but unfortunately I found it just a little bit too time-consuming, but yeah. uh, I would love to go back to it one day. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, time-consuming, I fully understand where you're coming from with that. The podcast is very similar. But I think it's pretty awesome. You're obviously trying to com- contribute to your local community then, and you've been contributing a lot to the, the um, DPR community since. Have you always been someone who's wanted to help and teach? To be perfectly honest, I haven't been. So when I was in uh, university, uh, I was happy uh, learning and I had no ambition of ever going back to university again. I had no ambition of ever studying much more again. I wanted to get through and that was it. And I wasn't, uh, you know, being most like most undergraduates, we're all learning together. Um, we're all trying to teach each other the wrong thing. <laughs> and uh, I remember having many silly arguments about a uh, bonding system uh, with one of my partners, uh, my clinic partners. And it turns out at the end of it, both of us were completely wrong. <laughs> um, so that probably put me off a little bit for it. Uh, and it wasn't until a little bit later on that uh, a couple of years after I started being a dentist that I realized that there were some things I do know, which although I don't know everything, and to be honest, I probably know less now than I did before, hmm. um, I still was able to help some young dentists along who came to visit me. So James Cook University started off up in Cairns, yep. and I had the privilege of having several students come to my practice and actually learn from me. And that was probably the beginning of anything uh, to do with any type of education. And I started to see the value of where a clinician who has some experience can actually offer something to someone who's just starting out in their dental career. Yeah, that, that's really awesome. And obviously, it makes a big impact on those people who who you're able to help. Um, so you were in North Queensland at the time. Let's take a big step back. We're going to get back to all your you know teaching and all that kind of stuff. But um, where'd you grow up? I am a bogan from Logan. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Tell us a bit more about that. (laughs) Uh, Logan, uh, for those who are not familiar with it, all you have to do is Google the news and you'll see plenty of uh, beautiful (laughs) pieces of information about it. It was a nice little suburb growing up. Uh, My parents moved there because, unfortunately, I didn't have too much money. And back when they bought a house and land for $11,000, they got the pair combined with a full acre on it. Wow. Uh, so it was a brilliant move for them, mm-hmm. although it did take my father an hour and a half each way to work. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, I grew up in Logan, and unfortunately, we uh, weren't the most uh, financially friendly family. Uh, there were at times when uh, wanted to eat some things, and I was told to dream about food because it's the easiest way to solve the hunger. Mm-hmm. Um, so wasn't necessarily the easiest uh, startup and that's probably affected a lot of where I am today because I've never forgotten what it's felt like to struggle to see the dentists and to pay for dentists. Like I remember one time I was going with my parents up to Mount Tambourine and now uh, Datsun 180B. Uh, <laughs> if you remember those cars, yeah. I think the door was still on at that point. <laughs> and I bit into this hot dog and I, I just wanted to eat a hot dog. And I bit into it. I had the most excruciating pain. I will never forget what that felt like to have a toothache. Wow. But more than that, I'll not forget how devastated my parents were at having to come off the money to go and see the dentist at that point. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Makes a big impact on our patients, doesn't it? 
A huge impact. And uh, it's something that as dentists, we are fortunate that even when we're doing poorly, we're still doing pretty well. Mm. So it's a little bit, it is quite easy for us to lose perspective of where our patient base tends to sit. Because uh, as much as we would love it, not everyone unfortunately can uh, be a dentist. And a lot of people uh, do struggle to go to the dentist and financially afford what we need to do for them. Uh, so that's why when I was in my clinic, uh, I worked hard at trying to come up with ways that patients could afford things without having to stretch their lives, stretch their budgets. So that's had a big effect on how I've run my uh, clinic and how I worked ever since. Yeah, for sure. Did that experience of having that pain, I, I'm sure obviously that was quite a negative experience, but did that then spur you on to dentistry or was it something else that took you there? Funny story, actually. I wanted to be a doctor when I was young mm. uh, because my mother had bad eyes. So I said, Mother, <laughs> I will be a doctor one day and I'm going to fix your eyes. Yeah. And as I went through uh, high school, I started uh, becoming good at computing and my interest switched to engineering. Mm. You switch to whatever you, you – know, we are interested in what we are best at yep. because it's the easiest way forward. Mm. So for a long time there, I was going to follow my father's footsteps and become an engineer. And I didn't know too much about the dentist. And then when I was cliffing through QTAC one day, I saw dentistry. Well, that sounds nice. And at that point in time, I didn't know too much about dentistry. My dentist was a uh, immigrant from Serbia, and he was a lovely dentist, but he worked in a uh, lower class area where we lived. He did not charge high fees and he had big, thick glasses, which convinced me that he was struggling to afford McDonald's, to which I later found out he wasn't. Um, and uh, I went, no, that sounds like fun. So I decided to put it on my QTAC application, which for anyone not in Queensland is where you apply for university. But I put it as the third option. Yeah. And I put information technology, electrical engineering as the top. And I got a letter from QUT saying, thank you for putting us as your first priority. I felt very proud about that. And then QTAC closed at midnight. And at about 10 p.m., I was flipping through the book and I read, dentistry must be your first choice or we will not consider you for an interview. Okay. So I had about an hour and a half to deliberate, and eventually I said, all right, fine. And I put dentistry as my number one choice, and that was actually how uh, it started. So it wasn't a very romantic beginning. There's a few people like that. I think they almost fall into dentistry. So you, you got in, obviously, you got your, your interview and you got into dentistry. Did you find your passion in dental school, or did it kind of form as you got out of dental school and into private practice? David? I'm really glad you asked that. The honest truth is I did not like it so much during university. <laughs> it's good to <laughs> hear, actually. It's good to hear. I, well, I find that this is a, a question that comes up a lot from dental students, which I encounter, and I've spoken to a lot of dentists which are quite similar. Uh, in dental school, we are stressed out. We're studying. It's a new thing. Everything's getting checked. We're stressed about the marks, you know, we're going, I've got a root canal, you've got perio, do you want to trade? Uh, yeah. You know, you try to fill your logbook up. And it can be a very 
intimidating environment and it doesn't necessarily bring out the most enjoyment of the process because really we are there to learn how to do it and to methodically follow filling in our logbook, yep. which is Absolutely. ultimately what we're trying to do in dental school as depressing as the truth is. Yep. And so it wasn't until after I graduated dentistry that I actually uh, found it to become a passion for me. Mm. Before then, it was what I was doing. And probably about two years in, it became my hobby, mm-hmm. my passion, my interest, and sadly, my life. <laughs> that's, that's always a good point too. I think the more interested you get in something, the more it does consume a lot more of your life. I think that's a really good story and really good thing for some, some of the students to hear because there's surely students and possibly new graduates struggling or not sure that they've got that passion that some others might have. So, I think that's really, really reassuring. How did you go in uni? If you obviously, you know, it wasn't quite your passion then. Did you did you go well, or did you kind of get through, or how was it? I found the beginning part pretty straightforward. I was very lucky that in high school, my chemistry teacher decided to teach us university level chemistry, which <laughs> meant I had one subject I could just uh, go straight through, and yeah. I had to struggle with the other ones. I found it very intense. I had to, uh, I did have to study hard and I did not find it easy at all. I I found it one of the most challenging parts. uh, I found it one of the most challenging things I've done. Hmm. Uh, And that's probably part of why myself and many others don't necessarily find that passion is it is a genuine struggle. You're being pushed universities that are taking dental students are only taking those who worked hard during high school, got really great marks, and uh, therefore tend to be individuals who focus really hard on studying and genuine interest. And unfortunately, I managed to slip through the cracks and get in. (laughs) That's exactly how I felt, actually. Uh, For me, it was a fear of failure that made me, it pushed me to like the other end. And, and just well, that's actually, that. sorry, that's actually, uh, that's perfectly what drove me forward. So Griffith University is the reason I succeeded. <laughs> so you may remember before I was mentioning that I am the Bogan from Logan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, before Griffith came along, the first dental school in 50-odd years in Australia, dentistry was Commonwealth supported. So if you f- did happen to fail a year, which reportedly happened quite a lot, unfortunately, uh, because they're quite hard on us all, it meant that you had a slightly higher hex debt. When Griffith came along, they were the first dental school to look at charging full fee for dentistry, but they kept it within hex limits. So the first three years was a Bachelor of Oral Health, majoring in dental science. And at the end of that three years, you were eligible to then get into the final two years. Unfortunately, there wasn't much else you could do of that, so that was your obligation. And the final two years were based on being a postgraduate. So it's actually a graduate diploma of clinical dentistry, which then allows you to become a dentist. And at the time, the Commonwealth allowed postgraduate courses to charge a maximum of $80,000 for total borrowing capacity. So the university course, thankfully, was (laughs) $80,000. 
the downside of that meant is that I failed any of those years. There was nothing left for me to fall back on because unfortunately there was no money left there mm. to go back upon. Mm. So the fear of failure was my driving force and probably is another reason that contributed to the lack of enjoyment because every spare moment I had that wasn't playing Counter-Strike and StarCraft was spent <laughs> studying. <laughs> yeah, no, that's so true though. That fear of failure kind of draws away some of the joy and the the interest and the personal, you know, growth in that area as well. But um, you, you, you certainly got through um, and then you, you spent uh, quite a few years in North Queensland. Tell us about your first few years um, in private practice. I remember my first patient. I'll never forget them. <laughs> That's not a good sign. <laughs> a 3-7 MO filling. Doesn't sound too bad, but I had to give a block. Yep. And when I graduated dental school, I dreaded the idea still of giving me a block because I wasn't confident. We were competent. Hmm. And dental school gets you certainly competent, but I was not confident. And it was the most exhilarating experience of my life. I think my heart rate went over 450,000 BPM. And thank goodness I had a wonderful assistant. And I think that's the biggest important thing that helped me when I first came out was having a very experienced assistant who knew exactly what I needed when I didn't. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And the biggest advice I could give for any graduate is whatever job you go for, the job isn't necessarily so relevant as long as the dental assistant is experienced because they will be your guiding force for your first few months after graduation. That's exactly the experience I had. I had some great (laughs) nurses early on and they'd hand you things and you think, yeah, that's that is what I want. <laughs> I'm glad I wasn't alone in that. Yeah, no. uh, following that, I uh, I went to – well, I had a couple of options. I had the option of either going to uh, Mackay or Kalgoorlie. <laughs> and I ended up talking to my orthodontist and he uh, – because I had braces for about six years. Uh, that was quite fun. And when he was getting close to debanding me – uh, I had some a discussion with him and he advised me to go to Mackay rather than Kalgoorlie. And part of the reason that he had was he thought that if I was there for 10 years, it would be much more enjoyable experience for me. And I laughed at him because when I said, okay, I'm going to go to Mackay, I said I might go up there for six months. Yep. And I got up there and I'd never lived outside of, uh, you know, Brisbane, Gold Coast type of region. Yep. And I went, I might leave in two weeks. <laughs> it was a big change for me. And when I first, you know, that's that first big leaving area and getting the job, everything, and it was hot, it was humid, it was different, and I was stressed. Uh, jokes on my orthodontist because I only ended up staying just over 10 years. <laughs> Spot on. Uh, and the first two years are quite st- probably stressful i didn't do a single crown for the first six months after i graduated Mm -hmm. and i had the belief that i needed to learn to walk before i could run Uh, i also remember telling myself that i'll never place a dental implant uh, which i didn't hold myself too well to but i had the ambition (laughs) there in the first six months and i'm glad i kept that belief early on uh, because i look back and when i first graduated i definitely didn't know anywhere enough to be doing complex dentistry. And so the environment, I was allowed to just do straightforward, simple dentistry, extractions, fillings, 
some small dentures, helping people get out of pain. And that really built my fundamental skills. And building up on the restorations and the extractions allowed me then later on to start progressively learning how to do crown preps and then some bridge preps and eventually lead on to implant work and the other stuff which I enjoy doing. Yeah, that's a really good point and it was something I was going to ask about what your advice is around that. It's easy to um, uh, get out of dentistry and and think you know it all or more importantly and I think more commonly um, not know what you don't know or you don't know what you don't know. Um, I was writing a post about that. There's a few um, people have posted things about the Dunning-Kruger effect or law. Oh, where, yes. Um, yeah, right at the start, you think you know everything and then it drops right down and you think you know nothing and then slowly you build back up to about halfway where you were at the start um, when you actually do know what you're talking about. And it seems like, um, yeah, that you think that is certainly a common thing and an important thing to keep in mind. You know, I have this conversation quite a bit because I'm fortunate that I get to encounter a lot of the students from CSU um, Sydney and previously as well, James Cook University. And uh, one of the two most common questions which I get is, first, should they look at specialising? And secondly, yeah. when should they start looking at doing uh, crowns and implants? Uh, which inevitably also comes into the question of where should the, my first job be? Uh, the first one's an easy question to answer. Don't even think about trying to look at specialization or anything in your first couple of years because you've only just begun to know what dentistry is even about. I know plenty of people which are specialists now and back in their day when they first graduated, worse, they never thought they'd ever become a specialist. And second, if they did, it wouldn't have been what they became. But they got that experience um, which brought them forward to realize that's actually what they enjoyed. So just relax and enjoy the dentistry. And that brings me to the second one, and that's, Dentistry, there's a big push nowadays to be fast. Hmm. And we need to consider that to do anything well takes time. And when we rush, we tend to not necessarily do everything perfectly quickly. We tend to skip steps. And so we skip excellence. We skip learning. So if we try and get involved with jobs and positions which are leading us towards advanced complex dentistry straight off the bat, we're missing out on that build-up uh, where we make a few mistakes in simpler things because there's a reason they call it the practice of dentistry. I mean, hopefully one day I'll actually get it right, um, and that's what they call <laughs> retirement. But uh, <laughs> you're very right on the Dunning-Kruger effect, that, and it's much easier for us to recover from a few composites that don't go right, a crown which fractures or an extraction which we have to call our local surgeon to bail us out of, uh, compared to if we didn't have all those learning experiences and instead we're putting in 16 veneers and then we're learning that same experience but times 16 at once. And mm. one of the lessons which has taken me a long time to learn is that life is certainly a marathon, not a race. And I'm going to sound like an old man here because I am old now. I'm in my 30s. <laughs> and when I was younger, I really wanted to get things done. I wanted to retire young. I wanted to learn quickly. And there's this driving passion. And whenever I looked at anyone who's my age now, they, 
didn't have that same desire to learn quickly and to change quickly. And I understand now that uh, we are not going to retire when we're 30 as much as we would like to. We're not going to retire at 35 as much as we would like to. Odds are we're going to start to enjoy life and we're going to end up working until we're 85 or we're going to have two yeah. economic crashes and we're going to end up working to 95. So we've got a long <laughs> time to enjoy, to grow, and to learn. And when we grow slowly but progressively, incrementally, we're able to not rush. We're able to do dentistry slowly and start to become efficient. And when we're efficient, we are able to do good quality dentistry in what other people might consider quickly, but it takes time to get there. Mm, yeah, for sure. Um, with that, that, that's such a really a great concept that I think um, people should grasp and it's something I'm, I'm learning from you right now, um, thinking about that. Is it something that you um, kind of fell into because of the job you took or is it something that you had mentors teach you and walk you through? to kind of get that concept? I was fortunate to have both. So the job I worked at, the person I worked for, he had no requirements for what I produce. He had no restrictions on how fast I would have to do things. He obviously had reasonable expectations, and if it took me four and a half hours to do a composite, there probably would have been some questions. But thankfully, that that didn't come around too often. And so most of the time, we were doing composites, you know, an hour visit to start with all these sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, so he encouraged me to grow slowly and never pushed me too far. But I was also lucky. Uh, probably my second year of dentistry, I started to encounter other dentists who were older than myself who had developed a passion for mentoring and for teaching. And the hardest part for me was to actually start to listen to them. It's easy for someone to give you advice, but it's very hard to listen and accept it. So I remember mm. one time one of my mentors gave me a whole list of courses that uh, they had done uh, over the last um, 10 years or so. So I decided that by the end of the year, I would end the year with absolutely no money and try and do as much CPD as possible. I managed to do most of the courses wow. that this person had done in that time frame. Uh, and looking back, I mean, financially, I probably would have been better off not doing it, but it was, <laughs> it was good advice. But importantly, a lot of these were not necessarily about doing complex dentistry. A lot of these courses are actually about slowing down and also about communication, which is the biggest thing that I learned about dentistry is slowing down, especially in the communication of a patient. Yeah, that's definitely that's something I personally have experienced as well. If you slow down and take the time with your patients, you, patients are more comfortable, you get better outcomes, everything's better. That's such an important thing. Well, one of the biggest reasons that people don't visit a dentist, they've done a lot of looking at this. If dentistry is free, uh, there's no problems with money, no problems with time, still a massive amount of people would not visit the dentist. And the main trouble is, is that they are anxious. And I have to admit, I actually have dental anxiety myself. I have significant dental anxiety. Um, I am one of the... That worst patient that you dread, you look in your book and you go, oh, no, not him again. That's me. 
So I understand where they're coming from. Dental phobia is something which is very hard to understand because the patient themselves doesn't understand it. So when we take the time to communicate with these patients and slow down and spend the first visit being 45 minutes now talking to these people, they start to develop a rapport, they start to become comfortable, and they start to be able to also give proper informed consent because they're past their anxiety and they're able to actually discuss with you. And there also happens to be generally uh, a reasonable amount of dental need for these patients. They often have pain or fillings which need to get sorted. So if you spend the time to get the trust from the patient, not only will you enjoy the dentistry more, at least I did. I mean, you can see yeah. I can have a good chin wag for hours and I'll be happy all day. <laughs> but the patient also gets the comfort and treatment which they need. Uh, and we're able to build those skills that we talked about doing dentistry slowly, doing straightforward dentistry for patients who genuinely have a need for it. Mm. Yeah, we're solving a lot of problems if we're able to break through that anxiety and allow a patient to accept um, treatment, accept care. If we scare them off by not communicating, not listening, we're doing a massive disservice. So that's a really, a really good point. Something I'll definitely take in. I think everyone should take that in. It's pretty important. Do you remember any um, any specific times in your early career where you had um, like big failures or or big successes early on that you felt uncomfortable with, or, or bad things that you weren't comfortable with? In terms of things which I felt uncomfortable with, it's Difficult to bring out specific examples. Um, anything that uh, doesn't go to plan tends to bring about a little PTSD in all of us. In fact, that's one of my research topics at the moment is uh, looking at the effects of things not going right on the dentists themselves. But Oh, wow. That'd be very interesting. Oh, it's a very uh, – it's an interesting topic. Research itself can take a bit of time and be a little bit monotonous, but it's a brilliant little topic to look at. However, any time I've had anything go not necessarily to plan, it's usually actually been an issue with the communication. And it sounds strange to say that, but the biggest trouble I've ever had has always been communication with the patient, where the patient and I are on slightly different pages with different expectations. And for some reason, I haven't been able to see that they're on a different page to me. And I've noticed that a lot when even... Uh, talking to other dentists, talking to students, uh, and reflecting on my own career, that when the patient is on the same page as us, they understand they have the same expectations of us, they tend to be quite accommodating of things taking a bit longer, not necessarily going to plan. When they have an expectation which is either unrealistic or hasn't been managed by us to begin with, that's when conflicts arise, and they tend not to arise at the beginning. It tends to be, you know, when you cement a few veneers and the patient suddenly decides that the shade is completely wrong or that it looks a little bit odd because they've had only uh, four veneers and really needed eight veneers. And that's where some of our communication breakdown in terms of our consent like, can come into it, and that's probably been the greatest um, – both the greatest successes for myself in allowing patients to come on board for me, but also my greatest failures in not making sure they're on the exact same page as myself. And so that's why I stress so much about communication 
and taking entire communication for your patient. It's the biggest practice builder you can ever do. Ripe Global is an incredible resource, especially in these times where travel is a little bit difficult, but we're also realizing it's not always necessary for our education. Especially when we're starting our career, we just want to get as much as we can. And a platform like Ripe Global's membership is perfect for that. But Ripe Global is a lot more than that. They've got the fellowship in restorative dentistry. And while it's already started with the posterior dentistry course, they've just released the anterior dentistry course. One where you're going to learn about composites, aesthetics, isolation and indirect work as well. One of the hardest things to do in dentistry is a single front tooth. And this course is aimed at helping you improve that skill. Find out more at ripeglobal.com or check out the show notes and you can get 30% off a membership, all from the comfort of your own home. Yeah, that's a that's a really great point. And yeah, communication. It always it always comes back to communication. It's so so important. Let's uh, let's change gears a bit. You you do a lot of stuff um, or talk a lot about implants. You you clearly are passionate about the implant um, or in, implant dentistry. Can you tell us a bit about how you um, went from the the graduate coming out? Um, doing you know the simple simple dentistry, never wanting to do an implant, to um, you know now being passionately interested in it. Well, I was fortunate that uh, the first course I ever did was quite well structured. It had a, uh, a brilliant surgeon, a brilliant prosthodontist uh, who were there and showed me each their respective parts. And then I was fortunate to have a mentor who held my hand through my first implant cases. And I think that's critically important for any implantology. Uh, if you don't have a mentor there to hold your hand over cases and to guide you of complications, it's pretty much impossible to confidently and confidently get involved with implants. And after I'd done a few cases, I just started to find that there was a need in my patient base uh, for these implants. And the person I was working with actually originally told me that uh, there's not really much interest or need for implants where I was. And it just turned out that it wasn't necessarily offered to a lot of people. And so when I started talking to people about, okay, well, I've got this procedure, um, it can be done, uh, you know, and I started talking about what what could be possible. It turns out a lot of people are actually quite interested in the process and most of the barriers for actually performing implants were myself, not offering to the patients. Now, it's not to say that everyone will get an implant, of course, nor is everyone a candidate. Mm. But then uh, the original course I did was actually through an implant company, Mm-hmm. And that implant company then gave me an opportunity back in about 2014 now to do a presentation for them. And till this day, I'm not quite sure why they chose me or asked me to do that <laughs> for them uh, because I was still quite new newbie at that time. But I had done enough cases to start to see things which go well and things which go less well. Mm. And I decided, well, if I can share that with others, then why not? So it was actually my first presentation for implants. So I guess implants hold a special place in my heart because it was the first time I was able to teach to an audience of more than one or two. And uh, I'm very thankful for that implant company uh, for doing that. And the person who invited me is still with that company today and quite good friends with them. And then, 
over time, I started uh, doing a lot of CPD on implantology. I started learning a lot. And I started to think that, well, I've done a lot of CPD. I've done a reasonable amount of work here. I obviously have some reasonable experience of implants. But what's very difficult to get is any form of uh, theory-based education at CPD. And I realized that was my weakness. And so eventually I applied for a course at James Cook University. Professor Neil Meredith was offering a uh, graduate diploma of dental implantology up there. It took about a year and a half to get off the ground. And when it finally did, I got a phone call and I was quite surprised. You know, I was like, oh, I forgot about that application. <laughs> and I got into it and it probably surged my interest and passion for implants more than anything else. And the reason is, is because it made me realize that no matter how much experience I had and how much I thought I knew, every time I learned something in that program, I knew even less than before. And it was quite humbling, descending down that Dunning-Kruger pathway yes. <laughs> all the way to the bottom. And when you start to live something for a whole year, which the, the program was, uh, it starts to become an even greater passion for you. And I remember our graduation speech. Uh, I was somehow elected to give the speech to Professor Meredith. And I said, Professor Meredith, I'd like to thank you for the education. I'd like you to know that I know less now than I did at the beginning of the year. And I was so thankful for that because it started my pathway of thinking that um, no matter how much we think then we know, there is so much more to learn about uh, everything in dentistry. And it made it very exciting you know, to know that there's so much that I can look at and uh, find out. And no matter how much we know, there's so much more research that is being done, it's being published, and that we can even do ourselves. Yeah, that's that's a fascinating journey. And I really want to get more into the um, the um, grad dip and then um, ultimately um, oral surgery uh, course you're in now. But um, you said you, you started off with a, uh, an implant company course and, and I think a lot of people would start with those small steps. If you could go back to your beginning with implants, would you change that? Would you still go with the implant company or would you go in a different pathway from the beginning? I'm very open about my view of this actually. If I had the time again, and you have to remember there wasn't too much of this at the time, mm. I would ideally go straight to doing uh, a diploma. And the reason is that I spent a lot of money on CPD. And most people who get into implants spend tens of thousands or possibly hundreds of thousands of dollars on CPD, learning everything. And the main trouble that we have is that we learn everything piecemeal. We learn a little bit here. We learn a little bit here. We learn a little bit over here. And there's all these gaps between our knowledge because it doesn't all link together. It's not structured. Now, that's not to say that you can't learn to do a straightforward implant in a uh, well-done company course, uh, provided that that course teaches you about complications and is very open about complications, which is one of the things that I do find is sometimes lacking. However, when you have a structured program and you build yourself up from the beginning to the end, you, you don't have these gaps of your knowledge and you have a beautiful foundation for which you can then select CPD 
to expand what you do with implantology. So rather than CPD being trying to build your haphazard foundation, you've got a few holes here, a bit of dirt here, a bit of dirt here, you can actually put the full foundation of your house in place and then start to build room by room using the CPD. And it fits onto what you've already learned. And so it makes more much sense and you get a lot more value for money. And so although a program can seem expensive and time-consuming, in the long run, retrospectively, it actually would have taken me less time and money to look at starting that way. Uh, it does not say I have any regrets about Pathway. I'm so thankful for the fact that I was able to get a lot out of this program because of the fact I had experience beforehand. But uh, to anyone coming out now, my advice is that if you build that foundation well, it'll serve you beautifully for the future. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier about the marathon. And if we sacrifice a year or two of our life and some money, we still have many, many more years to get, I guess you call a return on investment from that. Uh, we're never too old to do that, but obviously the younger we do that, the more years we get the dividends from that and the less complications we have to manage the less compl complications do you mean because you have a better understanding and so you make less mistakes exactly i mean like we said dentistry is the practice of dentistry none of us are perfect none of us do everything uh perfectly right every single time we all have um well in orthodontics they call it round tripping you know where we uh kind of do a little bit of this and then we go oh, i've got to go a little bit back and then go back to where i was going to go again uh, so learning a good foundation for anything, whatever your interest is, it doesn't necessarily apply to implants. These days, there's good foundational courses on implants, surgery, endodontics, uh, many other areas of interest for dentists, which uh, opens a lot of doors for them. When you have that knowledge of why you're doing something, it's a lot easier to figure out what you can do when things don't go to plan. And that's the beauty of having that foundation and structure. So with the the um, grad dip course, can you tell us just a bit about the time commitment it was for you? Um, and how many you know hours per week, or is it in person? Is it correspondence? Well, the one I did was uh, James Cook University uh, graduate diploma. It was one year. It was technically full time, but essentially we were given uh, articles each week, which we selected, and each week one of us had to run a seminar. And it was done actually online, a little bit like how you and me are uh, online doing this conversation. We had a group conversation. We could all talk on it and type to each other. Uh, we couldn't unfortunately see each other because it just killed the bandwidth. We did try it once. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. But uh, unfortunately, we didn't have any MBN. It looks like we never will. Um, <laughs> yeah, so we, we would go through anywhere from 10 to, to 15 articles uh, every week or two, and we'd essentially dissect them apart to, one, learn what the article is trying to help us understand, but second, also to train us on how to actually read literature. So that after we graduated from the program, we could then ex learn to understand when an article is good and we, so we should adopt it, but we can work on articles not so great and so we shouldn't really change our practice as a result. Uh, apart from that, we did have clinical up in Cairns where we saw patients. Um, we had the option of seeing some patients of theirs or better yet, we'd actually bring uh, our own patients there. And for my patients, uh, I essentially offered to 
to do their prosthetic work for lab fee only. And when they got up there, it was only a few hundred dollars for them to get the implant. So they ended up saving quite a lot of money and were more than happy to go out there in the program and do it. And there was about 16 of us in my program. There are other courses around, and uh, from what I understand, they're actually all quite brilliant. Um, some of them are a little bit more time commitment. I believe one of them requires you two days a week, for t- basically for a year and a half or so, whereas others are very similar time commitments to uh, the CANS program. Yeah, okay. That's interesting. So um, this is a broad question, but was it hard? It was. And the reason it was hard wasn't necessarily because of what we were doing. I mean, we were reading articles and placing implants under the guidance of brilliant uh, mm. you know, specialists and dentists. I remember one time I looked around and I think out of uh, seven people, there was about eight, eight PhDs in the room. So it's a pretty good cohort of uh, work that we had. Um, and, uh, you know, someone's really intelligent when they say that their second PhD was the easiest. Yeah. <laughs> um, the difficult part was retraining my mind. Because in dentistry, uh, we are studying and we're studying undergraduates. So we're taught to learn, we're taught to read textbooks, and we're taught how to listen to a lecture. When we went into the graduate diploma program, we were teaching each other and we had to actually dissect the information uh, from articles rather than a textbook and come up with our conclusions and discuss those conclusions, discuss whether the article is good or bad. Um, I remember a distinct example when we were examining the surface of an implant uh, in a textbook Um I'll never forget the day that uh, Prof. Meredith gave us uh, three days to read a 250-page textbook. That was a <laughs> brilliant read um, on surfaces, 250 pages on implant surfaces. I can strongly recommend it. Anyways, one, yeah. of, the, one, of, the, one of the implant surfaces, they didn't change very much except they changed the packaging. And the way they changed the packaging was they put it into sodium chloride solution, salt, saline. And then without changing anything, they then did electron studies of it, and they found that the surface had nanoparticles on it because nanosurfaces were just becoming all the rage of implants. And so we had a bit of discussion about it, and we go, so what might that be? Well, it turns out when you put an implant into an electron microscope, you have to dry it out. So essentially what we're looking at is salt crystals. (laughs) <laughs> and just learning to have that level of insight to uh, what yeah. we were reading was um, the hardest part of the program. Yeah, not just listening to what the rep says about the nanoparticles. That's um, that's a that's a good story. It's a good point for sure. Your so you you've done that graduate diploma oral implantology at JCU, um, and now you are doing a graduate diploma of um, surgical dentistry at UCID. Um, how did you go to choosing? Uh, to go into that? Well, I've always had a interest in uh, surgery ever since I was in university. It's one of the areas which uh, interested me, principally surgery and uh, periodontology would have been two uh, aspects which uh, got me interested, especially when you had a good perio clean and, um, you know, you weren't sure <laughs> whether you needed a transfusion at the end because of all the information. <laughs> but... Uh, I've always had a passion for the surgical side, and part of that was also with the job I was placed in. 
And it comes back to we are interested in what we are good at. And so mm -hmm. over the course of my time, I remember I did roughly 900 extractions in my first year of practice, uh, which is a reasonable wow. amount, I'm sure. Mm. And over the years, I did quite a number of extractions because that was uh, part of our focus was on fundamental dentistry. And then as I got more into the implantology side and into some soft tissue side, I liked the uh, surgical management of patients. So I found myself with some deficiencies in surgery, uh, certain aspects. Uh, and some people thought it was quite odd that I could um, place a couple of implants, but I had, uh, you know, I wouldn't do a single wisdom tooth, for example. So I just... I actually had to sit down for a while and decided what I wanted to do because I've been in the city for nearly 10 years by this point. And by 10 years, I liked where I was. I liked what I was doing, but I came to a, a crossroads in life. And that crossroads is I either had to commit to buying my clinic and essentially staying in Mackay for the next 10, 20 years, or look at moving around that point in time. And what I found is that after I'd done my James Cook University diploma, I found that the only way I could learn what I wanted to learn was through structured training. Because what I wanted to learn uh, in terms of advancing surgical skills of what I could do in my everyday clinic wasn't something that I could learn just from watching some people for a couple of days or doing a few surgeries here or there. Um, I wanted to not just be able to do extra surgery, but I wanted to understand why I was doing what I was doing. Because if I could understand why when something didn't go to plan, I could then adjust my plan to mm. move forward. And so the uh, opportunity came up for me to get enrolled in this uh, one-year full-time graduate diploma so the timing was ideal because I was coming at those crossroads. The offer came along to do something which I'd had a passion and interest in for the last um, decade, essentially. Makes me sound old when I say mm. decade. <laughs> um, you're you're an undergraduate um, dentistry graduate, so you're you're like um, weren't you like eighteen when you graduated? <laughs> Come on, I was seventeen. No, I was fortunate. That yeah. I, yeah, I was fortunate that I was straight out of high school, around to university, and um, that has its pluses and minuses. Uh, there's yeah, yeah. of both ways of dentistry in Australia and its training. But, um, yeah, I'd agree with that for sure. Um, you, you, you mentioned this is um, now a one-year uh, full-time commitment. So the commitment is quite different to the other program you're talking about? Infinitely is a short term. So <laughs> I, Professor Meredith, who headed up the James Cook program, what his passion and interest was, was being able to teach dentists how to do implantology but in a way where busy clinicians could actually make the time for it. So he didn't want people to have to sacrifice their clinics. He wanted them to still be able to work in their clinics and the place implants uh, in the clinics. Uh, yeah, we would discuss the implants with place in private practice as part of our weekly discussions. Okay, we actually had two discussions a week. One was our seminars and the other was on cases. Yeah. Uh, so from that point of view, it was designed to allow us to work essentially full-time um, in my case, I work full-time five days a week. I did the graduate diploma and I did the 
Royal Australian College of Dental Surgeon primaries all in the same year. I would not recommend that. Oh. I recommend the primary, but I'm not doing it all at once. Yeah, yeah. Don't worry. I won't be doing all those at once. <laughs> and even with that workload, it was still less of a workload than what this is now. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, so big commitment now. Um, is that is that time as well as um, uh, the the theory learning and and everything? Well, essentially, the program is a mixture of um, uh, teaching, learning, uh, theory discussions, research. Uh, you know, patient treatment, of course, forms a huge part of the program. So it's designed to be a completely full time program. So it's one year. Uh, as if you basically are a resident at the university, living at the university, uh, you know, learning uh, what you're trying to learn. Yeah, so quite a quite a different structure and and quite immersive in that. Um, did you have to do your primaries to you? You did your primaries obviously when you were doing the JCU course. Did you have to do that to get into the oral surgery at UC? Yeah, most uh, university courses these days do want you to have your primaries. Although even if someone isn't thinking about doing any form of postgraduate training, I would actually recommend doing the primaries. And the reason I say that is because I wasn't actually uh, thinking of trying to do any more further postgraduate study at the time. What made me do the primaries is one time I was looking at uh, a, another, well, a much more well-known surgeon, um, Dr. Radislaw, uh, who you may have seen mm. cases of uh, if you like seeing Phenomenal mm. surgery. Just take a look at his cases. They are magnificent. Mm-hmm. And I was listening to Rado speak, and I was trying to work out what made Rado so brilliant. And there was three parts to what made him a sensational surgeon. The first is he just had oodles of experience. I mean, we can't get around that pure fact. And yeah. the second is he was passionate and dedicated. To him, surgery was his entire life. That's what he loved. It's what got him excited. It's why he woke up in the morning. He went to bed simply so he could wake up for surgery. Okay? And that passion is something which you'll see in anyone who is very good at their craft. They essentially lived the life. But thirdly, and more relevantly, I like to go around a little bit of round tripping here. What weighed Rado brilliant was understanding fundamentals, physiology, biology, healing. So he could explain why he would do something based on the healing process of soft tissue and bone and build it from the ground up and from that argue why something should and shouldn't be done. And when you do the primaries, the primaries focus is on that fundamental knowledge. So I actually uh, looked at doing the fellowship um, orientation course two or three weeks before it happened, uh, which caused my staff some excitement because they had to cancel two weeks of patients. (laughs) (laughs) But without a doubt, it was one of the most uh, good value for money things I'd done. And having already completed dentistry before, I felt that the primaries filled in all the gaps for that foundation once again. And I can understand now why most postgraduate even diplomas and master's courses want you to have the primaries because it fills in the little bits of foundation that you're missing of your fundamental dentistry than they can build on. And so I felt more confident and competent with my patients and my dentistry. And I found that simply understanding more about physiology helped my implants to be more successful, 
understanding a little more about um, microbiology and pharmacology helped me to direct my patients to healing quicker and having less pain after I'd done some surgery or understanding a root canal, understanding the bacteria there. Uh, so I found it one of the most valuable things as a general dentist. That's a really, um, that's an interesting way of looking at it. I'd never thought of it in that depth. Um, I, I know it's quite a commitment. That's a two-week course and then the test itself. Yeah, it's a, it's a two-week orientation course and you can do the tests without doing it, although I wouldn't recommend that. Uh, the teachers at the orientation course are sensational. I never understood anatomy until Mark Tennant got up front and explained it to me in such beautiful ways. Uh, for the first time in my life, I truly understood the pathway of all the trigeminal nerves. And I was never, one of the reasons I never did the primaries was I assumed I could never pass because I'm not that smart. Okay. Uh, I work hard, but I'm certainly not a smart person. When I went to the orientation course, for the first time in my life, I believed I could actually pass the primaries. Um, yeah. And all these understanding of physiology and stuff really did help me. I'll give you a really nerdy example. Take, for example, anesthesia. If we're doing a lower six and we have a hot pulp, we do a block, the patient doesn't go numb. We do another block, the patient's still not numb. And so it comes down to the question of why isn't that patient going numb? And the, we have a few things. Sometimes it'll be accessory nerves. Definitely, of course, we can have some mild higher innovation. But one thing that made some sense in the primaries was our tongue doesn't develop from the same part of our face as everything else. It doesn't develop from the brachial arches. It actually develops down below and then comes up into our mouth. And so when it's doing that as part of that, it can actually bring cervical nerves up with it. And there is publications showing innovation of lower molars from cervical nerves, which can give accessory innovation. And another beautiful part is we look at anesthesia and we go, okay, well, it must be the pH or the infection causing it. But if we've just given a block, the pH hasn't changed anywhere near where we're injecting. So it shouldn't affect what we're doing. And so immediately when we understand anatomy and physiology, we go, hang on, that's not quite right. And when I delved into that, I discovered that we all know that sodium channels are blocked by uh, lignocaine or articaine or any of our anesthetics. The really nerdy part is there's actually 10 different types of sodium channels. And so when we have inflammation from a hot pulp, there's actually a shift in the type of sodium channels and instead of it being uh, the types which are able to be blocked by anesthesia, it moves to a type which actually can't be bound by anesthesia effectively. And so that's why even though it's nowhere near the tooth, because the nerve changes, we don't get the effect of anesthesia. And so because we understand that's from inflammation, if we use anti-inflammatories such as ibuprofen, dexamethasone, we can actually re reverse that process and then allow anesthesia to actually work. And this is what I found very interesting about understanding the physiology, the anatomy, the basic sciences of what we do and its effect on my everyday practice. That's fascinating, actually, and you've just taught me a bunch. I can't help but ask, so what's the... So you've got the, the six, it's not going numb. What's your protocol to get around that? The first thing I would do if uh, my six isn't going numb is obviously I make sure my blocks worked. 
yep. thankfully, the older you get, the less common that doesn't happen. <laughs> My usual go-to would be a moderately deep buckle infiltration. And uh, there's some light evidence that perhaps Articane might be more effective in that uh, as a supplementation when we do it as a buckle infiltration for a block. But I would tend to do a little bit deeper than uh, what we might expect. Because if we do it shallow, we're essentially numbing the long buckle nerve. But if we go deeper, mm. we're getting anesthesia towards those possible cervical nerves, and we're getting the anesthesia closer to where the roots are, and also to where the bone's a little bit thinner around the uh, fear alveolar nerve. So I find for myself uh, it's more successful. Um, another area which I learned recently from one of my consultants is actually numbing then the mental foramen. And it doesn't make sense that that should work. But for some reason, in cases where it doesn't go numb, it does. And finally, if then we still have some issues, I'll give my patient an appropriate chemotherapeutic, uh, such as some ibuprofen or some dexamethasone, depending on that patient's factors. I will then allow them to uh, essentially go out in the waiting room for about half an hour, get them back in, and use anesthesia, then will work. Right. Okay. So, so you get them to take the um, anti-inflammatories and then and then wait, say half an hour. So, same day treatment. Still, you're not waiting. You know, overnight. Some people talk about, oh, prescribe antibiotics and wait a couple of days, but that just leaves your patient in pain. That's why I'm not a fan of doing that, and that's one way that works. We've been doing it for a lot of years, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with doing that. What I do is just an alternative method. Um, and sometimes we don't have the capacity to fit the patient in the same day to bring him back later, or for some reason we can't give them those medications, or the patient becomes distressed. And that's fine. We can get them back another day. But uh, so far, knock on wood, this has been a good success for me, and it's just simply based on the physiological understanding of why I'm having that problem. That's fantastic. Uh, I, I did not know that, and I'm really happy to learn it. It's really great. Do you um do you do a lingual infiltration for myelohyoid nerve? Is that effective? Is that just a myth? I must confess, I don't really do lingual infiltrations in the posterior region, and the reason is is that uh, I've seen uh, patients where the injection has actually gone into the lingual nerve in that area, and unfortunately, if you inject right into the lingual nerve or damage it with the anesthesia, that can cause damage. So in some people, that lingual nerve can be quite close to where we're injecting. So I'm not saying there's anything necessarily wrong or that I'm against it, but my personal preference is that I don't do a lingual infiltration uh, for lower posterior molars. And thankfully, with my uh, what I just mentioned, I haven't so far needed to. Yeah, that's that's really great. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's fantastic. Um, speaking of this kind of stuff, this troubleshooting in the clinical side, um, I want to get into a bit of uh, implant complication stuff. Now, I'll start with I don't actually place implants. So, I'm doing this because I, I know a lot of people are interested in it and I'm sure a lot of people who listen are, are placing or at least thinking about placing um, implants. This is an interest of yours. Um, w- with that, how did you get into, I guess, teaching on complications of implants? Well, the simple fact of the matter is is that whenever you do anything, you're going to get uh, complications occur. And anyone who says that they don't have complications, I need to meet and learn from them because be a, <laughs> that, you always have things which don't go to plan. 
And so when we get a sheer volume of uh, procedures done, whatever it is, implantology, extractions, crowns, veneers, etc., we're going to encounter complications. And the more we do, the more likely we are to encounter rarer complications. So from my side, I was, I was quite interested in essentially auditing my own work because auditing our own work is the only way that we can learn from what we've done. So I tried to follow up my patients for years after I'd done the work. And I would then look at uh, how diff- what I had done, how it come about, and I'd also analyze if I ever had a surgery which didn't go to my plan, I'd think about it and go, what did I do wrong? What can I do better next time? And often if I couldn't find the answer, I'd try and ask people who did know the answer. Um, and uh, so that's how I got involved with the uh, discussion of complications. And I found that because not a lot of people – uh, necessarily uh, exceptionally eager to talk about complications. It was a very empty playing field for me to get involved with. Um, <laughs> and I hide nothing to the fact that if you do enough surgery of any type, you're going to get things which don't go exactly to your plan. And for anyone which is doing any form of dentistry, this is an important concept to understand that whenever you see posts done on uh, media in presentations, in publications, you're generally seeing the best work that that person can produce. Hidden in a stock photo somewhere in everyone's camera is the uh, cases which didn't necessarily go to plan, the problems that we had that we don't want to share with everyone. Uh, And so it's easy for us to get very down and upset about our own work because all we are seeing is the best of everything. We look at our own work and we go, well, I can't do it on every patient. And although obviously the more experienced we are, the more specialized someone is, the better the quality of work is, they're still going to have things which are not perfect each and every day, just like you, myself, any of us. Uh, So accepting the fact that complications will happen is a big part of mental health for dentists at large. We tend to, yes, yeah, I mentioned earlier that I was looking at some research to do with uh, the effect of dentists on complications and stuff, and the, uh, there's a name for this, and it's called the second victim. So when something doesn't go right for the patient, for most of us, the majority of us, things don't go right for us. We tend to not sleep well. We tend to worry about it. We start thinking about it. We catastrophize, think about worst-case scenarios, Um, and start planning our escape to the Cayman Islands. Uh, It's hard for most people to acknowledge the fact that we are a victim in this as much as the patient. And mental health is a growing problem amongst dentists, and especially young dentists, when we are looking at all this great work and then we are disappointed perhaps in what we are doing. So it's important to first acknowledge the fact that as long as we are trying our best, we are doing the best for that patient. If each and every day we are trying to do better than the day before, then we're, we should be happy and proud of ourselves. We should look at our complications as a way to improve what we do. But also, as long as we manage the patient appropriately once the complications occurred, that's the most important aspect. If we abandon the patient, of course, that's a very different story. But the patient isn't necessarily after trying to go after. They want to make sure that if something has happened, that you can help them 
in some way, shape or form, whether it's managing something, redoing a crown, perhaps referring on to get something else done or a senior colleague doing it. Uh, and so one of the reasons I got interested in talking about complications was to help people understand that each and every day, the best of the best will still have people not go uh, perfectly planned. Now, I'm definitely not the best of the best. I'm nowhere near, okay? I'm probably somewhere in moderate or the low. But despite that, um, I, ho I hope that uh, by sharing things, I can encourage others to look at their own work and reflect and to accept that as long as they're trying to do better, as long as they're doing better today than they did yesterday and they try and do even better tomorrow, that is the practice of dentistry. Absolutely. Um, I will say, Andrew, you're, I've been reading your post for literally for years and I know many others have too. You're someone, you're, you're well and truly better than, um, what did you say, moderate to low. You're up there doing some great work and, and also, and I really appreciate this, you're sharing those failures, you're considering those failures and you're sharing that important message about mental health and dentistry. That's something that's really close to my heart. It's really important stuff. Um, I'm doing a push-up challenge for mental health right now and one of the reasons I thought this is an awesome thing to do is because I was thinking about the mental health in dentistry. So um, I'm really glad that that came up. It's a really good point. Um, with with complications um, and and sharing that kind of stuff, um, I guess some people were here, uh, I don't place implants but I obviously I want to learn a bit about it but there would be people who are very interested in hearing your opinions on what other things people are making mistakes with um, early on and what are they leading themselves into that they don't really have to? The biggest thing about implants is the surgery you can learn, the prosthetics you can learn, but the most important part is your treatment planning and case selection. And the biggest uh, you know, learning curve is understanding when we should and shouldn't be placing implants. So if we have a diabetic smoker um, that, uh, you know, has extensive periodontal disease and ha hasn't used a toothbrush since, you know, before I was born, it's probably not going to be the, the best case necessarily. But that's an easy one for most of us to pick. It comes to these more marginal cases. There's a lot of evidence showing that the most important part for periimplantitis is hygiene. Um, my favorite papers, Sereno and Strom 2009 and Sereno 2019. <laughs> oh, yeah. I can't do that. I can't quote papers like that. That's amazing. Go on. I, just because I like them. I can't quote too much. Well, Sereno and Strom 2009 showed that um, in patients which could clean, their periimplantitis risk was roughly 4% or so, mm -hmm. where the prosthetic design was good, the patient was maintained, um, and they could clean their prosthesis. In those which couldn't, it was roughly 48% periimplantitis. Wow. So that's the power of hygiene. Hmm. There's another study, which I can't remember, which looked at patients with no periodontal disease, and they placed an implant, and then they treated them like a periodontal patient. So hmm. every uh, four months or so, they're coming in, they're getting a dental clean done. And over quite a long time period, and I forgive me, please, I forget the exact, it was roughly eight or nine years, the incidence of periimplantitis in that group was 0%. Um, so understanding the importance of hygiene and maintenance is probably the biggest lesson that I would like to shortcut for anyone. 
Um, and uh, we need to be prepared to design our prosthesis so it can be cleanable. Uh, we need to be prepared to make sure the patient is willing to commit to the requirements. So for any implants, which uh, I do these days, I tell the patient, if you get this done, you're committing for the rest of your life to at a bare minimum every six months getting a checkup and clean done uh, because otherwise there's not much point in doing that. The other thing I tell my patients, which is the truth, is that everything fails. And this is the other fallacy we can get in with implants is the belief that they're forever. We don't necessarily have great data about how long they last, but inevitably an implant is guaranteed to fail at some point. Now that point sometimes is early on, within months to years, or sometimes there are patients with uh, the original implants done by P.I. Brunemark years ago still in place. And the longest I'm aware of is a roughly 41-year-old uh, case where the patient um, unfortunately passed away, but they passed away with their original implants and, uh, still in place. It's possible. But at the same time, there's just as many patients who have gone only two or three years and have problems and have to get their implants out. So understanding and discussing with the patient the fact that failure will happen and how important hygiene is, is the two biggest lessons I would pass on to anyone who's considering implantology. And it comes back again to communication and setting those expectations as well, something that's a fundamental skill. If you don't have that, you're getting into the more complex dentistry, you're going to be setting yourself up for um, issues with communication. That's a really good point. So, Angie, you also talk a little bit about, um, you know, work-life balance, overwork, and, um, the, you know, the impacts it can have on us as clinicians. Um, tell us a bit about your thoughts about all of that. One of the things I mentioned to know is that it's very hard when we're young to see that life is a marathon, not a race. And the older we get, the more we see that. And advice I got given younger was from older dentists saying, slow down and look after your body. And like any good young dentist, of course, I completely ignored them. And so uh, another part of why I was facing my dilemma of what I should do was I was actually finding I was getting a lot of um, pain starting uh, towards the end there. Uh, and the pain was purely muscular. But if we don't address our muscular problem, that eventually becomes skeletal problems. And then it starts to become quite irreversible. But when we have muscular problems and we treat it and we manage it, we prevent ourselves from getting most of these irreversible complications. Uh, so physically looking after ourselves, dentistry is a hugely demanding part of the body. We contort ourselves in positions we're not meant to. We're sitting down most of the day. There'd be days I could probably measure my steps in the tens and, you know, I'd be lucky if I got that many. Uh, so it's very easy to become unhealthy. And then because as dentists, we tend to be quite engaged with our profession. A lot of us, you know, what we call a type A personality, we want to get the best, we focus. So it's easy for us to spend hours after work doing notes, doing treatment planning, spending our weekends doing CPD courses the life of a dentist or a doctor essentially belongs to our patients. And when we do that, we start to become depressed and jaded. Mm. And combine that with our lack of exercise, our growing musculoskeletal pains. I mean, 
try and find a dentist who hasn't had some type of back or shoulder pain or neck pain. And uh, you start to find a dentist who should be buying your lotto tickets for you. <laughs> Absolutely. What's your advice around that? With um, you know, you you started to experience a little bit of the physical um, issues. Did you did you find yourself to get a bit jaded with um, dentistry as you worked um, perhaps you know too many hours, or what was it that caused these things for you? Certainly, when I was starting to get uh, into long hours, it starts to become harder to be enthusiastic. Yeah, and it became a lot more difficult for me to be waking up as easily in the morning and being quite enthusiastic about it. And I've noticed this in some friends and colleagues of myself as well, when they've been putting hours into the business, especially if they're a practice owner, uh, and their life essentially becomes consumed by the, uh, the dentistry. So the first bit of advice is that really in dentistry, as much as we don't want to admit it, four days is essentially a full-time job for us. In those four days, we tend to put more than 40 hours already of work into things. We consider our letters, our notes, our before, our treatment planning, our, you know, our DPR reading, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> more than 40. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's just in one day. Um, taking time for ourselves and learning some hobbies outside of dentistry, certainly I would like to do that one day. But for those of my friends who have listened to my actual advice, unlike <laughs> And I've done so, I've found it, uh, they found that dentistry, the passion has come back. The other thing is ensuring yep. that we keep moving. So for myself, uh, when I, out of nowhere, I had never experienced it before, I suddenly couldn't move. Um, I just had this significant spasm in my lower back. It came out of nowhere. Um, thankfully, I have insurance for those things, but I didn't need to claim anything. And that's another thing, get insurance while you're young. Mm-hmm. Uh, it only gets worse. <laughs> and I had to see a physio. And the physio helped me. And thankfully, I had no skeletal troubles. It was purely muscular. And this is what made me realize how uh, important it is. And so the physio showed me exercises, which, you know, one every couple of months I'll do. Um, and they got me out of pain. They got me moving. And when I listen to their stretching, their exercises, and I actually obey them, uh, not only am I better at my dentistry, my life just feels better. I feel better. I feel younger. I feel more passionate. At times when I don't listen to my physio and I don't maintain the movements and I get stuck in the positions, um, it, uh, it becomes harder. And so my advice is start looking at that young. Prophylactically start looking, going to a physio, if you look at a lot of dentists, they tend to tilt their head to one side or raise a shoulder if they don't because we tend to lean if we're right-handed to our right or if we're left-handed to our left. Our muscles all become shortened, and then we wonder why our neck hurts and why our shoulder hurts, and then we have dentists ending up with carpal tunnel or uh, tennis elbow, all these sorts of things. So if we can prevent it while we're young from happening in the first place, that's the best thing we can do for ourselves. <laughs> I... um. I've always heard people say to me, you know, work on your posture. And I, just like you said, I, I, I didn't listen too much to them. Um, I spent years doing a dental assistant before I was a dentist and you do the same motion twisting. Um, and now I'm on the other side of the chair, but still twisting to the left as a right-hander uh, and have experienced some of that stuff myself. So um, I fully agree. I, myself, what keeps my mind 
free is to go for a, you know a ride or do something like that um get the body moving it makes a massive difference and you can literally come back to your dentistry and do better work because you can focus there's uh two points i wanted to mention one i'm, I'm really excited to interview dr aniko ball uh coming up soon that podcast will be out soon and it's going to be on this kind of topic um and another one you mentioned insurance there's um a podcast we did with mark rothney uh all around insurance i think that's so important so if you haven't listened to them it's worth worth checking up um Andrew, this has been really great. I want to ask you just a couple of final um, questions and these are ones um, I want you to kind of think back and, and give some advice to our young graduates and students who are listening to this um, or anyone who's listening. Um, if you could go back for yourself um, to those first couple of years out of uh, dental school, what would you do, what would you say to yourself that would help change you and make your progression either faster or better? You know, that's a really darn good question. And it's actually one I think about a lot myself. Hmm. And if I go back and tell myself the things, the first would be what we just mentioned, look after physically yourself. Second would be slow down. Just slow down. I, I, as much as any other dentist, am guilty of wanting to learn as much things as I can as fast as possible. But uh, I would slow down and try and get really, really, really good perfectly at what I could do. I'd also start taking photos a lot earlier because until I started photographing my work, I could see everything that was happening because when we photo it, we can come back to it and see all the stuff we missed in the moment. Mm. Uh, So it allows us to slow right down to an instant. Uh, I still remember getting laughed at at all my rubber dams and uh, my terrible composites and everything when I first started photographing my own work. And I'd look at it and go, oh, I did that. Mm-hmm. And so photographing everything earlier on and analyzing my photos would be a big part. And the other one would be trying to work out earlier on if I what I have a passion in and trying to look at good, solid structured training to become really good at that whether that's all the way to a specialization for someone who only wants to do that or whether it's doing a uh, graduate diploma or master's course for someone who wants to stay a gp but become really good at particular part building a good foundation on what we love makes the job enjoyable and sets a good foundation for the whole future that's really good advice. I, I think those things are really important, particularly the photography uh, is something that I, I don't do enough of. And when I do do it, I learn so much from my own work. So that's that's great advice for students and graduates. Um, I want to ask you a similar question. And this is, um, if you could imagine yourself um, being able to get in the ear of every single student or every graduating dentist, is there something of the current you know, graduating year that you'd want to be able to teach them or tell them? Um, to help them move forward into private practice? You know, I think I'm going to sound like a broken record here. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's all right. <clears throat> but uh, I really feel that accepting the fact that communication is the biggest, most difficult thing you're going to have to learn and that not every patient is going to like you. Yes, I love that point. Uh, communication, as we have discussed already, 
is a huge part of the uh, consent process, huge part of the patient trusting you. Uh, it's also a huge part of the enjoyment for our job. In one of the most uh, fun bits of our job is that we get to talk to people for a while, uh, and then when we get bored, we can put a rubber dam on. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I often wonder <laughs> how it'd be hard to be a hairdresser because while you're doing your work, you still have to talk. We we can use rubber dam. It's much easier for us. <laughs> I can't see why a hairdresser can't do the same. <laughs> A ranker, yeah. Yeah, so communication definitely is something that um, I think everyone tends to come back to and I, I completely agree. It's something that um, that's the only thing your patients can truly judge you on um, and it's also it's the thing that will make your patients love you or, or not. So it's, it's really great advice. Andrew, I, I want to say thank you so much for spending the time with us here at Dental Ed Start podcast but at the same time, I want to thank you for... Um, all the, the input you give to, to DPR, um, I know for the people who are listening who don't know what it is, the Facebook group, um, 12,000 or so dentists in Australia and New Zealand. And um, Andrew, you've been a big part of that for, um, for well, the whole time I've ever known about it. So thank you for your help. Thank you for joining us on uh, the Dental Heads Up podcast. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure to be here and uh, hopefully we don't put too many people to sleep. <laughs> Good bedtime listening. Yes, perfect. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks, Andrew.